Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. The more astute amongst you might have noticed that it's been a few weeks since I've posted an episode. It was somewhat unavoidable. First, I was sick, and until recently, my voice wasn't back to its smooth, seductive, and yet deeply masculine quality that you all know and love. But then I was also doing some traveling to see family and to conduct some genealogical research up in New York. But we're back, and I'm going to pick up where I left off last time in the middle of a discussion of the context of the American Revolution. This is important stuff. I would love to be able to suggest that we all learned this stuff in high school, but I'm positive that kids these days aren't getting a fair look at American history, and adults who were old enough to have once learned this stuff the right way are also old enough to have forgotten much of it. Now, I I made the conscious decision to sound really old there when I say the phrase kids these days, because despite what some of my colleagues in the field might say, American history education in modern public schools is absolute garbage in the 2020s. One of my many, many complaints about the product of a modern education is that kids leave high school not understanding the first thing about how the American system of government is supposed to work, knowing full well that these students will soon vote accordingly. And one of the ways schools fail us in this regard is by not ensuring that those kids understand why the American system works the way it does. And here we find the chief benefit of studying the American Revolution. Uh, Besides the fact that it's full of great stories of just about every kind, I want it to be understood that much of the way our founding fathers set up our government was derived from two different bits of context. The first is that they read a lot of Roman history, and that they were deeply affected by the history of the Roman Republic in particular. Now, that's super cool for a historian like me, who also finds Roman history all kinds of fun, but I'm going to set that aside so I can focus on the other bit of context, that much of the American founding is a direct reaction to the way the British government attempted to rule the colonies in the generation leading up to 1776. Our government is supposed to work in a particular way in order to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. And when we forget what those mistakes were, well, I mean, there's that old cliche about those who forget the past being doomed to repeat it. In the past couple episodes, I spoke about a couple of documents, then read the text of those documents in separate recordings. Today, I'm taking a different approach. I'm going to cover some basic notes about a set of documents that we collectively call the Intolerable Acts, a name which, as you can imagine, is not what the British called them. Remember in an earlier episode when I told you that it will help to understand all this if you just automatically assume that the British were the bad guys in all this? That's going to be really easy when we talk about these different bills passed by Parliament. There's a reason the colonists called them intolerable. The first one I'll mention is actually the last of the five. I just want to get it out of the way. The Quebec Act really has nothing to do with the other four, but it was passed in the same session of Parliament, so oftentimes colonists lumped it in with the other four. I'm really not interested in getting into the Quebec Act. It had to do with the uh, organization of Quebec, uh, which had been acquired in the French and Indian War, and it really only affected the colonists Uh, in the 13 colonies because it theoretically changed the map enough 
that some land claims were suddenly in question. There were also some concerns over what the colonists saw as favoring Catholics, which is actually a pretty strange read when you consider the history of Catholicism in Britain up to that time. All in all, it's, it's an issue for another day. The other four acts, however, are super relevant. They were passed in response to the Boston Tea Party. Just a brief reminder for those of you who, um, well, those of you who learned this in school, uh, the Boston Tea Party in December of 1773 was when some of the more disaffected colonists protested the British tax on tea by throwing boxes of tea off of ships in Boston Harbor while dressed up as American Indians. Now, some, some snide historians like to point out that those dumb Americans would have paid less under this new tax system, but they, like the British Parliament, missed the point completely. The point was that in levying this tax, Parliament was, as was the case in several instances leading up to the Revolution, claiming authority that the colonists did not believe Parliament had. Besides, this system was set up in such a way that British merchants could legally avoid the tax while colonial merchants had to pay it. So, for all the talk among the British that the colonists were virtually represented in Parliament, they were being held to very, very different rules. Anyway, in response to what happened in Boston, Parliament passed a group of five new laws, and I'm going to take, as I said, the first four of those laws one at a time since there really is no other way to do it. The first of these was super fun, the Boston Port Act. By this act, the British Parliament created a blockade of a British-owned port, in this particular case, specifically Boston, and held the town essentially under siege from the sea until the tea was paid for. Spoiler alert, it never was, and every year to this day, the British government still, with good humor, bills us for the tea. I'm not going to read you the entire bill like I did the last couple of documents because it really is a great example of how legislation can sometimes use hundreds of words when five or six will do. I'll give you one example. I actually counted this and found that the bill uses 234 words to say the phrase, the port of Boston is closed until further notice. And then it uses about as many after that to describe what will happen if you try to bring goods in or out. Then it goes on in, again, about as many words to say that even if the tea was paid for, the king would decide when Boston could get off the timeout chair. There are a number of problems with this. When the colonists said that they felt the British were being tyrannical, today we all understand that nobody seriously thought that George III was an 18th century Adolf Hitler or that he was uh, a genocidal maniac or something. They didn't believe that, but that does not mean that his parliament could be trusted to govern fairly and justly. The average person in Boston was not at the dock when the tea went overboard. It isn't entirely clear if the average person supported throwing the tea overboard, though if there was a place in the colonies where a modern polling company might have found that that was a majority opinion, I suppose Boston was the place for it. But an embargo is an act of war and the Parliament was enforcing it on British subjects as though they were already in rebellion. And despite what your liberal uncle tells you at Thanksgiving this year, an out-of-control riot is not the same thing as an insurrection. And herein lies the lesson for our modern times. If two sides are in disagreement, and every action results in an overreaction from the other side, what you end up with is a ratchet where things only move in one direction. 
when a disagreement is ratcheting up between a responsible government and an increasingly angry mob, it is incumbent on that government to defuse the situation because they are the ones who are, in theory, in charge. The Boston Port Act made no attempt to defuse the situation. It, and, and by the way, here's where the British become the baddies, it very predictably made things worse. The second of these bills was called the Massachusetts Government Act, and it goes right along with the Boston Port Act. There is a historian named David Ammerman who wrote a great uh, essay on these acts. Uh, it was called The Tea Crisis and Its Consequences Through 1775. Uh, I know it was republished online back in, uh, I think, 2008, but I actually have it uh, in the Compendium of the American Revolution, which was published in 2000. And I think I remember reading that it was derived from work Ammerman did back in the 1970s, so it's been around a while now. He described this better than I can, so I'm going to quote a couple sentences from him. Quote, The Massachusetts Government Act altered by parliamentary fiat, as far as the colonists saw it, the basic structure of colonial government. It provided that the upper house, or council, should henceforth be appointed by the king rather than selected by the governor from a list nominated by the lower house." Unquote. Okay, so right off the bat, we have a problem. I'm trying to describe the upper house of the legislature in Massachusetts, and I want everyone listening to this to try to say Massachusetts legislature five times really fast, because uh, I've just tried recording this five times really fast, and it is impossible to say. Anyway, the upper house of that thing was now royally controlled. Before this, the lower house had some level of control. You'll recall the phrase checks and balances. It had one of these checks or balances on the upper house by providing a list to the governor, a list of men who were acceptable as candidates for the upper house, but no longer. To make sure this change happened, the new law was brought over by a new governor, General Thomas Gage, who very quickly saw to it that this and other parts of the intolerable acts were put into force. For example, Emmerman goes on to say that the law, quote, also brought local administration more directly under the control of the governor. Towns were allowed to hold their cherished meeting only once a year and were forbidden to concern themselves with other than local matters. The thrust and intent of the law was to limit the democratic features of New England government." Unquote. Ammerman's description makes perfect sense, especially when you consider that just a year before the Boston Tea Party, Gage had written his opinion that, quote, democracy was too prevalent in America. Now, we know today that the words democracy and republic are often used interchangeably when, in fact, they, they actually have different meanings. But no matter which way you slice it, a quick way to signal a big old red flag to Americans is when you say something like, democracy is too prevalent, while simultaneously taking away the rights of people to govern themselves. There isn't a good way to look at that on this side of the pond. And Gage knew this. That's why he suggested, and Parliament passed, the third of these bills, something called the Administration of Justice Act. This simply had to do with what might happen if government officials like Gage were to be arrested while enforcing the first two acts. Why would they be arrested? Well, Gage and his cronies were there to drink tea and take away the traditional rights of Americans, and thanks to the Sons of Liberty, they were all out of tea. If they were overzealous, they might be stopped by local law enforcement. 
And if Gage determined that a fair trial was not possible, this act reserved his right to move his trial uh, or those of other government officials out of Massachusetts, either to another colony or back to Britain. To give an idea of how this was viewed, the colonists sometimes referred to the Administration of Justice Act as the Murder Act on the belief that they thought it would actually literally allow royal officials to get away with murder. This is very easy to understand in our modern political environment. A few years ago, we all watched George Floyd's death on a 24-hour repeat on any number of news channels. Imagine if Derek Chauvin's trial for Floyd's death had been moved to, I don't know, maybe Guantanamo Bay, where witnesses might not be able to make it, or the chain of custody of evidence between Milwaukee and Cuba might not be quite right. Now, to be fair, witnesses under the Administration of Justice Act were to be compensated, but we all know that even if their expenses were reimbursed, nobody can just be away from home for a year at a time to testify in a trial. It just wasn't reasonable. And under these circumstances, what do you think the result would have been out in the streets if Chauvin's Guantanamo Bay trial had failed to convict? At a minimum, you would have conspiracy theories out the wazoo, which, as we all know, is where most conspiracy theories come from. But far more likely, nobody would have trusted Gage and his governments, nor should they have. The fourth of these acts also had something to do with General, now Governor, Gage. Gage had been one of the bigger Whigs back during the French and Indian War, and he had found it difficult to persuade the colonial legislatures to put up British soldiers during the war, to give them a place to stay, uh, to house them. Their skepticism of the British Army is something I mentioned in the previous podcast, and to just refresh your memory, Americans didn't like British soldiers, and British soldiers didn't like Americans. Colonial legislatures were generally willing to pay for provisions for them, but when the war was over, many colonists didn't quite understand why the British government insisted on keeping troops in America. After all, Americans had been more or less defending themselves from the get-go without any real help from the crown. So why needlessly introduce this threat, uh, this threat to American liberty? I, I know that sounds strange today, since traditional Americans have a great deal of respect for our men and women in uniform. But the attitude was a little different. The attitude is what you might expect if the government was telling compound-dwelling libertarians in Montana that the FBI would be stationed on their land just in case. When General Gage convinced Parliament back in the 1760s to force the colonists to put up soldiers in unoccupied buildings, the colonists felt annoyed, but not particularly put out. When Parliament passed a new act in 1774, at the same time that an embargo, again, an act of war in most cases, an embargo was being enacted against one of the colonies, and the royal government was taking clear steps to centralize authority among people who traditionally adhered to decentralized institutions, the colonists took it personally. Many more modern historians have pointed out, as Ammerman did, that the law did not actually force the colonists to take soldiers into their homes. That's not what it did. They were supposed to stay out of your house and only use outbuildings and taverns and things like that. However, the Americans didn't remember that part of it. They only remembered the stories often spread around about officers and soldiers 
forcibly quartering themselves in homes in clear violation of the law. So, once again, just like the last couple of episodes, we see the British government acting without really understanding the situation on the ground. And again, there are lessons for the modern era here. Americans, by this time, were simply not like their British cousins. After all, that's why they were here in America and not in Britain still. They did not see a siege of Boston as commensurate punishment for a bunch of yahoos who destroyed the property of the East India Company. And quite the opposite. The response from the British garnered sympathy for those yahoos and their cause. The same is true of the Massachusetts Government Act. If you want to start pushing the buttons of traditional Americans, go ahead and take a top-down approach to politics. It didn't matter what the policies were going to be. How policy was made was at least as important as the policies themselves. And that's actually a really important aspect of American governance that many people today have seemed to have lost sight of. And how about the Justice Act? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Even if the intentions are good, which I don't believe they were in this particular case, but even if they were good, if a government is seen as having a lack of transparency, that government is begging for conspiracy theories and distrust. And then we have the Quartering Act. We, we're Americans. We simply don't deal with this nonsense. In fact, the Third Amendment to the Constitution puts the kibosh on this, and as far as I know, it has never been challenged, because the American sentiment towards this idea was pretty much set in stone even before 1774 came around. It simply isn't done, not because Americans aren't willing to help, or because we don't trust authority. We actually do trust authority when the authority is trustworthy. But a government that gives Americans condescension and doesn't follow its own rules? Well... If you don't see the problem by now, your tea is waiting for you at the bottom of Boston Harbor. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.